This is not the media. This is hell. I cannot wait until this stupid pandemic is over so we can get back to our normal lives. We're avoiding an infectious disease that can lead to a long, painful, slow, and miserable death is not a daily priority. Yes, this is hell. If you are like me during this age of the virus, you can't wait to get back to the normal of not worrying about some pathogen that's lurking, waiting to strike and take society or at least a portion of it down with it. But that's the problem with disease. It never goes away. And in fact, the likelihood of another epidemic is much greater than it ever was. Yet every time the next virus has been treated with a vaccine, or its lethality seems to fade while the disease still lingers, society seems to go back to being lax, dropping its guard, and making itself more vulnerable than ever to a new outbreak as our vulnerabilities are multiplied by globalization and climate change. See, that's the real issue with this pandemic that we are experiencing right now, or any Human history is filled with epidemics, so much so that they've guided our time on this planet more than even wars. They've even guided wars. We'll discuss our current pandemic within the context of our global history of disease when we speak in a few with historian Frank M. Snowden, author of Epidemics in Society, From the Black Death to the Present. Frank is Andrew Downey Oreck, Professor Emeritus of History and History of Medicine at Yale University. His previous books include Naples in the Time of Cholera, 1884 to 1911, and The Conquest of Malaria, Italy, 1900 to 1962, which was awarded the Gustav Reynas Prize from the Macmillan Center at Yale in 2007 as the... Mm, pages are stuck together here. <laughs> no, they're not. They're just heavy-gauge paper. As the best book on an international topic by a member of the Yale facility. The Helen and Howard R. Moraro Prize by the American Historical Association as the best work on Italy in any period. And the 2008 Welch Medal from the American Association for the History of Medicine. So we'll be speaking with Frank in a few. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth. Radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so producing must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you? I'm good. Um, I'm in the middle of writing final papers. This is the first time I've left the house in days. What are your, what's the, one of your papers, uh, the one that you're working on right now the most? Um, well, I'm writing research proposals, so it's like writing a history of black populism, um, that's kind of general, but it'll get more specific. So when do you have to have this stuff in by? Um, tomorrow. Oh, sweet. So you're enjoying right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, I got a question for you boxing-wise. Yeah. So I we have three decks off the back of our three flats, all right? <laughs> yeah. On the second floor deck, my downstairs neighbor, the idiot who got COVID, he has hung a heavy bag from the support beams to our deck above him uh-huh. and when he is punching this heavy bag <laughs> the whole building shakes do you think it's a very good if you're gonna hang up a heavy bag how do you hang up your heavy bag do you hang it up to a support truss in your building that sounds like a carpentry question <laughs> do you have a heavy bag uh, i do yeah it's in it's in the uh it's like attached to the beams in my garage yeah and does it cause any issues when you're punching it do you ever hear the building feel like it's shaking or anything no actually i mean yeah we had those problems but we've we've fixed them (laughs) (laughs) because today i was very happy to see a fedex truck pull up out front and they brought in for my downstairs neighbor a heavy bag stand and i'm very (laughs) glad that he finally got one because my building has been shaking from him using a stupid heavy bag Last Tuesday, I, a week ago, I, my whole world was spinning and I couldn't do the show because I'm freaked out about seeing the doctor because of the pandemic. I have no idea if it was vertigo, a sinus infection, dehydration, exhaustion, fatigue. A listener suggested I may have something called Meniere's disease that seems to only affect one ear and whatever it was last week, it had my entire head spinning from ear to ear, so who knows. Last time we were doing the show, you were saying that you've been uh, boxing. What was the weight that you box at? That was the one thing I wanted to ask you, Jess. 145. And who do you fight with? Do you have friends or do you fight competitively? Well, 
right now it's just my friends when fights start happening again. Oh, I see. That's a good point. (laughs) I never thought about that. So uh, can you please tell us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the worst thing to happen to you in 2020? And it wasn't, by the way, my downstairs neighbor having COVID and then putting a heavy bag on the back deck and shaking our building. I can promise you that. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email Email it to chuck at thisishell.com or producer, or to our producer, alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. We will be naming the sixth title to make our list of 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020 following our guest. But first, let's get caught up on what you've been sending us at Chuck at thisishell.com, messaging messaging to us via Facebook, DMing us via Twitter. You may remember back in October, John emailed us and asked if we would help by promoting the fundraiser that Counterbunch, Counterpunch, not Counterbunch, totally different website, Counterpunch was doing at the time. John explained that he believed Counterpunch, in his words, was not nearly as far along the curve to a sustainable existence as this is hell. So we mentioned the fundraiser for Counterpunch on air and corrected John about his misperception about our finances as Counterpunch makes far more money than we do. And I'm certain we do not make one percent of what they earn. So after informing you all about the fund drive for Counterpunch and after hearing me mention our lack of relative financial success. John wrote back telling us he's supporting This Is Hell. John says, I'm down for $25. I wish you the best. And am girding for the security forces to come to my house. May you sustain your unsustainable business model, John. Thanks. And in case any of the security forces are listening right now, those security forces who may not be treating John very well in the very near future, I've never met John before. I have no idea who he is. You also might remember that a couple of weeks ago, we got a guest suggestion from Adam, who tipped us off to an article by the journalist and filmmaker Dan Cohen titled, How Joe Biden Plans to Make the American Empire Great Again. Behind his rhetoric, Joe Biden will seek nothing less than global supremacy, escalating a new and even more dangerous arms race that risks the destruction of humanity. What he calls decency and normalcy. The article was posted at Mint Press. So I asked simply what listeners thought of Mint Press. And we got some interesting responses, including one from Adam, who suggested Dan Cohen in the first place. Rebecca wrote, saying, Mint Press cannot in any way whatsoever be cited or linked to without mention of the fact that it is a Russian propaganda outlet, except I should clarify. I can't remember who was the money behind Mint Press. It may not have been Russian oligarchic money. I shouldn't have said that so definitively. Aside from that, they do uncover some interesting stuff. Certainly they follow threads that need following and ask questions that need to be asked, but the agenda they represent is so dang thick that little they publish can be really be trusted, unfortunately. Rebecca says, I worked on the Occupy Wall Street website, and we couldn't bring ourselves to link to anything from Mint Press News. What I tended to do was take something raised in a Mint Press article and fact-check the hell out of it. I found that I could start out with the topic of scrutiny that a Mint Press article raised and find other much more solid lines of inquiry and reputable sources that would get us closer to the truth. In contrast, Al Jazeera ain't that different in that it also represents its royal patrons, but we can rely on a lot of the reporting about the Americas, not so much about the Middle East. It was nice to discover your show recently. I lived in Chicago in 2002, and the anarchist scene had a permanent influence. Brings me back. Thanks, Rebecca. So, Rebecca is skeptical, and she is a good enough media critic to separate how Al Jazeera, or what Al Jazeera covers. Maybe not trust Al Jazeera when it comes to the Middle East, but trust it when it comes to the Americas. So, Rebecca is skeptical. Adam, the person who actually suggested Dan Cohen to begin with, He replies, 
I have a skeptically positive emphasis on the skeptically and on the positive view of Mint Press. Same goes for the Gray Zone, where I first saw the Dan Cohen article and video I sent along. They republished it. Gray Zone did. My skepticism of these outlets stems from their contrarian perspectives on Syria, Xinjiang, and Hong Kong. I'm still making up my mind on a lot of it, though I'll note that I'm more unambivalently in agreement with them on Palestine and on Latin America hotspots like Bolivia, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, I perceive the reporting to be coming from an earnest PSL-ish perspective, but understandably they're interpreted as authoritarian apologists by a lot of people, including a decent number of self-identified lefties. PSL, by the way, is the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which is a communist party in the United States established in 2004, apparently. Who knew? Adam continues, My positive impressions of Cohen, Mint Press, and the Gray Zone come from reading and listening to their work over the last couple of years. The piece I sent on Joe Biden's incoming foreign policy crew is, as far as I've seen, the most comprehensive and illustrative out there on the subject. And it is a really interesting subject, especially because Joe Biden just named his new defense secretary, or who his defense secretary is going to be, a former army general. They, uh, it says, uh, let's see, Gray Zone regularly offer essential in-depth content context in their reporting that I don't find hardly anywhere else, even in left spaces. I've been especially impressed by the grasp of how Herman, Edward Herman, and Noam Chomsky's notion of worthy versus unworthy victims manifests itself in contemporary media. And that is the really fascinating thing that Noam came up with back in the 90s. Lastly, I'll note that there's a lot of great This Is Held guests I follow on Twitter who follow Dan Cohen themselves, including Brian Muir, Mark Ames, Margaret Kimberly, Brett Gustafson, Christian Sorensen, Lucas Kerner, Katie Halper, Yasha Levin, and Danny Haifong. Maybe some of them aren't fans and just want to keep up with what's going on with the tankies, but I'd imagine most of them think Cohen and Mint Press are in fact worth listening to. Adam sent this on Thanksgiving, so he closes with Happy Genocide Day, Adam. The following Monday, we had contributor Brian Muir on the show, who uh, Adam just mentioned as following Dan Cohen. Brian works for Telesur English and Brazil Wire, and he reports to us every so often from Sao Paulo. Brian is no fan of the coverage of Brazil that you find in the Western press, especially the liberal Western media like the New York Times and The Guardian. He's described how he has met with these people on several occasions as he works in the media as well, and every time they act as if they're these lefty sympathizers, and then the stuff they get published is always supportive of whoever the U.S. government is backing, and that usually means they are aligned with U.S. business interests on the right. Then on yesterday's show, producer Alex Jerry mentioned that our guest this coming Wednesday, tomorrow will be the award, or Thursday, sorry, on Thursday, will be the award-winning investigative journalist and nonfiction writer covering East Africa, Amanda Sperber. Amanda will be on to talk about her article, Uber made big promises in Kenya. Drivers say it's ruined their lives. That story appeared at NBC News, and Alex found it weird to be saying we'll have a guest on to talk about their work, which appeared at NBC News. So, listeners, should we judge a book by its cover? Email us. Should we not have anyone on from a certain outlet because of the outlet itself? Or should we judge the work on its own, by its own merit? Does a writer, by posting their work at a site, tacitly endorse every position anyone has ever taken at that outlet or support that outlet's ownership and everything those owners may have done in their past, even prior to the outlet? existing. As it is so difficult to get paying writing gigs, should we cut people slack who cannot get paid for their work to be published elsewhere? And what if they're not getting paid? They're simply giving the content away for free. Is that more of an endorsement of the site, its content, and its ownership? Far too often there's dismissiveness of content based on where it is posted and not on what the work itself argues. So we're asking you, To what extent do you consider the source, the outlet, at which an article is published in determining whether a work is worthwhile or not? And does featuring writers from certain outlets delegitimize whatever work they have posted? Because we've had listeners tell us, I can't believe you interviewed someone from who was uh, writing was at uh, The New Republic or The Atlantic or Salon or Slate or Mother Jones or Alternate or The Nation, which are all sites that are dismissed out of hand as incredibly uncool. So 
how much do you and should we consider the source? We want to know. Send us what you think to chuck at thisishell.com. You can send it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can DM it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. And unless you tell us otherwise, we will likely share your thoughts on the topic on air. And if you want to send us something, some physical thing in the mail, you can do that too by addressing whatever you want. Two, this is hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's this is hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. This is not the media. This is hell coming up our current pandemic within the context of our history of epidemics. Jess will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins, well, whatever they want from our selection of merchandise at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can have the trucker's cap, the winter hat, the t-shirt, the tote bag, the camping mug, whatever you want. It's your choice from our website, thisishell.com. When you click on support, don't forget to leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, email it to us, tweet it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Our world has a very long history of epidemics, which have had a huge impact on some of the most important events to have ever taken place. Yet, for whatever reason, we consistently ignore the societal threat of disease, dropping our guard for a moment just long enough for the next virus to do its destructive work. Here to help us understand our current COVID-19 pandemic within the context of our history of epidemics, historian Frank M. Snowden is author of Epidemics in Society, From the Black Death to the Present. Welcome to This is Hell, Frank. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank it's you great. It's great to have you on the show. This is a fascinating book because we've obviously we've been talking to people about the coronavirus since March, but we haven't talked about it within a historical context. And I'm so glad to have you on the show to talk about this. Your book was originally published in October of last year, 2019, two and a half months before the generally accepted first case of coronavirus was reported in Wuhan. Some might think that was incredibly prescient of you writing a book on pandemics just before another plague was unleashed. So how certain were you that another pandemic would happen and soon? Or is this not a matter of accurately predicting the future as there are always and will always be pandemics? Oh, right. Um, I My answer to that is that I shared, if you, I don't want to take personal credit for great prescience because the truth of the matter is that since 1997, virologists and epidemiologists have been talking about our extraordinary vulnerability to a new pulmonary um, viral disease. And in fact, the director of the CDC, uh, Gerberding, Julie Gerberding, uh, testified by Congress, along with Anthony Fauci in 2005, saying that it was if you lived in the Caribbean, it would be meteorologists could tell you that a hurricane was coming. They couldn't tell you the date or the speed of the winds but they could tell you it was inevitable and that you'd be very foolish if you didn't prepare. And they said it was just like that with regard to uh, medical science, public health and virology, that they knew that a new pandemic threat was going to occur in the near future. They couldn't say how virulent it would be or the exact date. But they did warn the U.S. Congress that if we didn't prepare for it, then we were extremely unwise. Um, there were, in addition to that sort of warning, there were dress rehearsals, avian flu, SARS, um, uh, Ebola, MERS, etc. And so there were lots of warnings. And so I was actually expecting in my lifetime uh, a new uh, pandemic threat. I didn't realize, of course, that it was going to happen so immediately after I wrote my book, but I closed the book with this rather somber reflection that we really do need uh, to be careful 
and to take steps to be sure that we're ready to face a threat that's almost inevitable. Well, if there are always pandemics, and you just said that it's almost inevitable, and I, I don't want to, and if, if we want to use the Trump administration as an example, that's fine, but I don't want to just you know, solely focus on the Trump administration response. Right. But what explains right. any global unpreparedness for this kind of spread of disease? I think uh, some of it is um, human nature, which is that people simply don't like to think about uh, this possibility. And uh, they also don't like to uh, budget for the measures that are necessary to confront it adequately, which actually are quite profound, as we're now learning to our cost. And so I think it's that combination. Plus, in the industrial world, there's a kind of hubris, uh, and we can see this uh, in our own country, but also in Britain and in the European Union countries, that, oh, well, this is something that we as a, a highly developed and also very um, uh, scientific society were protected by bulwarks of science and uh, hygiene, education, and civilization. And so it's not really such a serious threat. I think all of those are important features. Do you think there there is a level of racism or classism or white or Western supremacy within that thinking? I do. Um, this is, I say, the industrial West, uh, which is to say that, and we saw this in the Ebola, uh, which was considered by industrial countries in the West, including our own, as something very distant because it was in West Africa and wasn't actually much of a danger to us. So I think this does express a colonial attitude, a first world attitude towards uh, the disadvantaged and the impoverished nations of the world, a kind of sense that, oh, well, they're health future is nothing like ours. We don't really need to be concerned with that. You write that the interval between the SARS crisis of 2003 and the Ebola epidemic is illustrative. Immediately after the SARS experience, the World Health Organization produced a global influenza preparedness plan in 2005 to establish guidelines for country-by-country country efforts, revised the international health regulations to include emerging disease threats as notifiable events, and devised its own rapid response capabilities. In the same year, the U.S. government issued a national state st strategy for pandemic influenza and allocated funding for that purpose. Similar plans were drawn up by the Department of Defense, the Veterans Administration, the 50 states, and a series of major companies in the private sector. But as the emergency receded and fear subsided, citizens and governments reverted to business as usual. So is the public to blame for dropping their guard? Are we currently experiencing a massive daily deadly outbreak here in the U.S. because the public did not apply the political pressure necessary to protect us. To what extent is this our fault? I do believe we can see uh, that the uh, we as the public, we are not entirely innocent and in that uh, we don't favor much um, additional taxation or uh, that would be necessary to fund scientific research and some of the preparedness that's necessary. And we don't press our politicians uh, on this front very much. But uh, in a sense, uh, I think it's also the case that our politicians have not served us well by keeping us informed. I think the general public depends on politicians, the media, uh, public health officials to apprise them of uh, these dangers that are lurking. And so I think that uh, although the public does share in the blame, I think the primary responsibility lies a bit higher up in the food chain and uh, is an attitude by authorities more than it is of the general public.
And I want to get back to talking about COVID-19, obviously, but but the the history of uh, epidemics, which is the focus of your work and your book, is absolutely fascinating. And it seems like it is incredibly ignored, that every time there is a new epidemic, it's almost seen as an anomaly, as something that is never expected. And you write armed conflict in an era of total war, which began with mass conscription during the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic eras, in Involved the clash of military forces of unprecedented size, even of even of entire peoples. Warfare on such a scale created fertile conditions for epidemic diseases such as typhus, dysentery, typhoid, fever, malaria, and the, and syphilis to flourish. War creates a fertile environment for not only disease but epidemics. To you, what explains why those who oppose war don't mention the potential for epidemics as a reason to not go to war? Why is the potential? for epidemic never mentioned in the media when a war is being debated. We always hear about so many of the potential war crimes that might be committed. Why isn't the global public health threat of war causing disease ever a topic when wars are about to be launched? I think that you're absolutely right about that. And it is a uh, really shocking puzzle. I think part of the answer is the one that we mentioned, which is that as human beings, we really don't like to think about sickness and being vulnerable to sickness, whereas warfare seems more as though uh, it's about uh, glory, national honor, patriotism, uh, all those sorts of factors. And so there's a kind of heroic factor uh, and acceptance of the need uh, also to spend and to mobilize resources uh, to prosecute war, whereas uh, health seems more nebulous, more distant, something that's an option and that we don't really have to have it. So I think those are features that, um, and there's another one, which is that I think that our public authorities, really the politicians who make these decisions, have very little understanding of the dangers of the warfare in terms of disease. That is to say, the history of disease is not included in school curricula, in the background, uh, even of uh, public health and medical scientists. And so, uh, and there have been some simulation exercises, such as Dark Winter, uh, some years ago, which was uh, a planning session in which politicians went through a simulated disease. And what emerged from that was the extraordinary ignorance of our leading politicians, and this is not a partisan uh, factor in general, about uh, what you should do in case a disease does break out, that they simply aren't prepared uh, scientifically in this way. And that's a major source of our danger. You mentioned the great military force that Napoleon Bonaparte sent to the Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue in 1802-1803 to restore slavery and impose French rule. A virulent epidemic of yellow fever, however, destroyed Napoleon's army and led to a cascade of consequences, including Haitian independence and the Louisiana Purchase. I have heard of all sorts of reasons for why the U.S. was able to acquire the Louisiana Purchase, but it wasn't until this past January when we were speaking with historian Vincent Brown about his book, Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war, that I knew of this connection between epidemics and the war for independence in Haiti and the Louisiana Purchase. And I believe Vincent mentioned how we could, we should keep that in mind as the outbreak was devastating Wuhan and the impact that they, that might have historically on the world. Why do we not consider that impact of viruses on history or recognize this role, the role they play? Is there a sense of, uh, of a loss of control over our fates when we acknowledge the power disease has over human history? I do believe uh, that there is that aspect of it, which means that people really, uh, as soon as people recover from a disease or an illness, they like to forget it rather than to remember the pain uh, that they've endured. And I think in general, uh, I mean, my my daughters feel that they're unlucky and that they have a father who doesn't mind talking about gruesome events at the dinner table. Um, I think there is a sense that there's something rude about illness, uh, that it's something we prefer to 
draw a screen around. Uh, and major epidemics are uh, examples of that. So I think there is a kind of cultural um, lack of willingness to engage on this topic. And then I think one must look at our educational system and the fact that history courses uh, only recently have they begun to include the fact that our world would not be the way that it is if it hadn't been for these major pandemics, which have radically transformed uh, our history just in the way that demography and econ economics and wars and revolutions have. And so I think we're very late in uh, really beginning to accept this fact of our evolution as a people. It just reminds me of how when I was in, I think it was in 11th grade, I had this class called Conflict, Its Causes and Effects. And we studied World War I so intensely that I completely understood how trench warfare worked, how the tertiary lines work, how all the different processes within trench warfare worked. And at no point in that class did I learn that the Spanish flu, that Spanish influenza had any impact on that war whatsoever. Do you think that there's, what do you think is the politics that is being taught either intentionally or unintentionally to students when the Spanish flu is completely omitted from learning about World War I? I think there are lots of reasons for that, uh, some of which have to do with our contingent factors. That is to say that this, the Spanish influenza was immediately forgotten, uh, partly for reasons we mentioned, human beings want to put, in, to put it behind them, but also it was overshadowed uh, by the war itself, four years of conflict, and the Spanish influenza occurred at the end of that, and people were really focused on the war. Um, and then there was the peacemaking afterwards, and uh, there was uh, uh, all of that was, and the fact that during the Spanish influenza, because of the war, the press and the government uh, self-censored so that they wouldn't give other enemy nations an advantage in terms of what their morale or their manpower capabilities were. So there were lots of pressures. And then after the war, there were the Russian revolutions and in the United States, the Red Scare. So people had all of these other preoccupations and the influenza now seemed distant. Uh, but then there's also the fact that uh, the war is often taught as somehow something heroic. And so the heroes of the war are remembered, but the equally heroic people, the doctors, nurses, healthcare workers who fought uh, the Spanish influenza, which killed maybe 50 to 100 million people. I mean, that's, and the war itself, only 17 million. So it's extraordinary that they and their sacrifices and the suffering that we all endured have been forgotten. I don't think it's a political conspiracy. I'm uh, very loath to uh, think about conspiracy theories. I don't believe there's any sort of conspiracy afoot here. It has to do with a cultural orientation and a kind of willingness of our society uh, to not look at uh, things that are not glamorous or glorious or heroic, and health is a particular one. Hopefully that is changing because uh, our future depends on it. And I like that more of distinguishing as a cultural orientation than any kind of conspiracy theory. And that's what I was trying to say, if it was intentional or unintentional, whatever it has occurred. Uh, in, in the preface of the paperback edition, so your book came out in October of 2019, the hardback edition did. And then the paperback edition has just come out. And in the preface, uh, which is an update because the coronavirus has unfortunately infected so many, you write that the coronavirus, a severe acute respiratory syndrome, has unleashed a pandemic since the original publication of my book, Coronavirus Disease, COVID-19, is still too new and too poorly understood to allow us to assess its ultimate impact. But its broad contours have become sufficiently clear, and several of its features relate closely to the themes of this book. So how well, I don't think this is a question enough people actually ask, how well is COVID-19 understood right now, nearly a year since the first case was reported? What do we still 
not know about COVID-19. I mean, we don't have an index patient like we had with Ebola. So what don't we know about COVID-19 that we need to know desperately in order to address it? I think that there's a lot that we don't know, but this is almost inevitable um, because it's only been uh, amongst us since uh, the end of 2019, early 2020. So in historical terms, it's really recent. So it's one could be struck by how much we have already learned about a disease that was unknown uh, a year ago, and now its genome has been sequenced and so on. But to answer your question, uh, the amount that's still not known is critical. Uh, major questions remain. We still, the mechanisms of its uh, pathophysiology, that is how it affects the human body, are just beginning to be unraveled. And this disease turns out to be so much more complicated than people thought. It isn't always a respiratory disease. It can affect any uh, organ, um, organ in the body. It can be a gastrointestinal disease. It can um, affect the kidneys. It can be a cardiovascular disease. You can have your heart and it seems now also the brain. So we're a long way from understanding its mechanisms and its very complicated physiology. We're still not really uh, aware, uh, we're putting a lot of faith, I think, I'm a great fan of how quickly the vaccines have been developed, it's extraordinary, but I find myself uh, troubled by the ease with which people slip into the idea that, oh, well, it's practically over now, the vaccine is coming and that will be the end of it. Uh, I think we don't know um, that, and that seems to me a little bit magical thinking that we always want to have. A vaccine will clearly be a wonderful tool, but that it will just put the disease behind us. I'm not at all sure that that's true. And the head, Dr. Tedros of the WHO, even made an interesting uh, sort of analogy with magical thinking. He said he loved the vaccine also, and it will be critical. But he said he was a little worried about a sort of magic unicorn thinking where people thought they had uncovered in the vaccine this magic unicorn which could uh, deal with every problem with just one horn, that is one weapon, uh, that in this case the vaccine. And I think that is a problem we're going to need, I think as a society, not simply to pull a uh, veil over this tremendously destabilizing experience. We need to know what happened, how it happened, what we need to do to prevent it from happening in the future. So there's a lot of work about the epidemiology of the disease, uh, its physiology, uh, all in pathology, all of that really needs a lot more investigation. And we still don't know anything about, or not anything, uh, but therapeutics are um, an area that's um, really not uh, at all well-developed with regard uh, to this particular disease. My sister is a journalist, and she is a biologist, and she interviewed a lot of epidemiologists over the last eight or nine months. And one of the things she said kept coming up was their concern over Operation Warp Speed and their fears that it might create a vaccine that was either ineffective or had horrible side effects. Is there any history of a vaccine or some kind of cure to address an epidemic that actually made the situation potentially worse? Well, um, there have been uh, there's some extraordinary uh, things about uh, vaccines historically that won't happen this time. I really, really uh, feel uh, well, not certain, but really believe. Um, one is with tuberculosis, there was uh, the BCG uh, um, uh, vaccine that was rolled out and distributed around the world. And now, although that enormous cost and effort, it's not at all clear that this had any impact on uh, tuberculosis at all. Um, that's one example. And then there have been a number of examples of um, where under the press of haste, of speed, uh, corners were cut, 
And a good example was the Qatar uh, incident with regard to the polio vaccine, where some of the safety measures uh, were compromised. And the result was that the polio vaccine that was produced, in fact, did generate uh, cause a number of, of deaths and quite a lot of sickness, thereby uh, having a long impact on people's distrust of vaccinations. Vaccines are very important and we need them, And we, uh, but we do need to realize um, as a society that they also aren't a, a magic bullet and that uh, we need to, we won't know for some time exactly uh, what we have in the new vaccines that are coming along down the pipeline. It's very encouraging, but uh, I don't think we yet know exactly what we're going to get in terms of its real effectiveness in protecting people. We don't know whether, for example, it will be equally protective for children, uh, if uh, it's really effective with old people. We don't know how, and the frail people in our midst, we don't know how durable the immunity it provides is going to be. So there's so many uh, uh, issues still outstanding that we need the vaccine and we should be preparing and deploying it, but we shouldn't be putting all of our eggs in one basket and think that's all we need to do and that we can set aside social distancing, hand washing, wearing masks and so on. And I'm terribly worried about the fact that we're going to think that all we need now is the vaccine. We are speaking with Frank M. Snowden, historian and author of Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. And I know a lot of our listeners have been reading articles that we've been sharing. We've been interviewing authors of on this show, as well as books on viruses and COVID-19. But I just want to say to all of our listeners, you got to get Frank's book because this is the one that provides the historical context that makes this whole con the whole concept far more fascinating than it seems to be and far more three-dimensional and not just the two-dimensional flat thing that we are served up on a regular basis by the media. You write of all the issues raised by COVID-19, the most important is preparedness. Nobel laureate Joshua Lederberg famously argued that in the contest between humans and microbes, the only defense humans possess is their wits, one could add to Letterberg's formulation, our capacity to collaborate if we so choose. Now, there was a sense at the beginning of the pandemic that there might be collaboration with calls for unity from the Trump administration and the rhetoric repeated in the me media that we are all in this together. Simultaneously, the same media was talking about a race for the cure, like it was a competition, and that of a Russian cure, and a British cure, and an American cure, and reported fears that research for any of them may be stolen from any, from any of them. While the U.S. may not have been collaborating, even leaving the World Health Organization, showing how little the Trump administration was, in was interested in collaborating with international agencies, to what extent did the rest of the world show any capacity to collaborate? And, and why not compete instead of collaborate? Doesn't competition, when it comes to vaccines and pandemics, lead to innovation and the pursuit of profit, increased motivation? Why collaborate when we can compete? Right. Um, I think the, uh, dealing with the last bit first, uh, we are actually all in this together, but we don't seem willing to accept that. Uh, and the idea, I'm hoping that a metaphor for our era in future generations, people won't look back and say the most appropriate symbol uh, was the Trumpian wall. That is divisiveness in our midst and thinking that we could shelter behind national barriers and solve these problems one country on its own. Uh, the problem is, of course, that the first great internationalists are microbes. Um, and if we're going, they don't respect borders. And if we don't confront them in an international way also, then we're going to be uh, horrendously vulnerable to them. We need, um, not just as a matter, it's a good thing, it's ethically right to have a strong World Health Organization that can also help the poorer nations of the world. But we, it's a matter of enlightened self-interest for everyone. If someone falls sick of COVID or its successor in any part of the world, the whole world is at danger. And so we need 
collaboration across borders, where resources, uh, uh, response teams, um, equipment, uh, and all of that is directed to the places where they're needed, where scientists uh, around the world share information, share the genetic sequencing, and all of the rest of it. And that's much more protective uh, than competition. I'm afraid the competition is likely to yield, uh, it may be good for profits and intellectual property and those sorts of things, but it's not the best way to feed scientific advance. And we've seen uh, throughout this pandemic, the enormous uh, input that has been uh, made by having medical journals now fast track you know, their articles and around the world, the genetics, the genome for uh, the virus that causes COVID-19 has been made available all around the world. And that's the background, in fact, even for the successful development of the various vaccines. So I believe that uh, cooperation, collaboration is part of our survival kit uh, going forward to the future. And it sounds like the rest of the world seems to be doing a lot more collaborating than the United States is. How much of an obstacle are borders to fighting epidemics? Is nationalism bad for public health when it comes to viruses and diseases? Because when you discuss public health strategies in responding to epidemics, you mentioned the policy of concealment as a means to deny the presence of a disease, as China did at the onset of the SARS outbreak, and as other national governments and municipalities have done over a long history. I mean, why would you deny a disease? Wouldn't you want other people to know that you have been infected so they could help you in alleviating the, you know, the problems with that disease. Why be secretive? How much does nationalism play a role in spreading disease? Uh, nationalism plays uh, uh, an unfortunate role in spreading the disease uh, because, as I've said, uh, the there are no national barriers to microbes, uh, particularly in our in this is, made, in fact, made more uh, true by the era of globalization, the jet airplane, and the movement of masses of people around the planet and continuously, and our intense connectivity. Uh, we know all that through uh, the chains uh, for our industry and equipment and all of the rest of it. So we are intensely dependent upon each other, and denying that is actually aiding um, the microbes and not protecting us at all uh, in this uh, new phase uh, of our existence as part of a globalized world. And we can see that, for example, the European Union in dealing with COVID-19 had uh, a terrible problem of national borders in that the different countries did not adopt a common strategy. And so you'd have, for example, at the border between Belgium and the Netherlands, an absurd situation where one set of policies on one side of a white line on a map uh, was completely different from that on another side or within uh, the United States, that what happens in one county or one state is contradicted by what happens in another. And you really can't have an effective response as we discovered to our cost uh, with such a fragmented approach uh, down to state level or down to single nations. You really need a global um, response to issues that are as serious as this. You write that epidemics provide important lenses through which to examine the affected societies and the way in which they are constructed, the relations of human beings to one another, the moral priorities of political and religious leaders, the relationship of human beings to both the natural and the built environments, and the severely compromised standards of living that were ignored in more settled times. And that has been one of the most fascinating things about the pandemic, how much it has revealed about society that we've done everything we can to ignore, to be in denialism about. So let me ask about two very different societal responses we have seen caused by COVID-19. The first is the anti-masker, the kind that attends rallies and public displays of refusal to abide by protocols like having mass public haircutting events or presidential campaign rallies or armed occupation of state legislatures. What, are, what do those actions say about our moral priorities and relationship with each other in 2020? 
Uh, there uh, seems to me an extraordinary uh, assertion of individualism uh, against the common interest. That is to say, I'm not going to wear a mask because I feel that my masculinity is undermined by it, or I feel that uh, my right in the constitution to liberty, so-called, uh, means that uh, you as the public health official can't tell me what to do. Um, and I feel that this is actually an immoral attitude that that, I think through in political theory, there's been a long history of uh, distinguishing between liberty and license, uh, that you have a right to uh, swing your fist as long as it doesn't come near my nose. Um, and I think that we now are allowing people, people are thinking that they have a right also uh, to make other people around them ill, to spread the coronavirus. I believe nobody has that right that we have duties and obligations to each other if we're all going to survive and prosper in this world. And so that attitude that it's, I'll simply do whatever I feel like is deadly in the time of uh, being uh, of a, uh, an outbreak like this. And we don't have a right simply to drive through red lights and cause havoc and destruction and mow pedestrians down. We also don't have a right simply to breathe deadly organisms onto the other people around us. That doesn't seem to me uh, a, a, a justifiable human or constitutional liberty. The second societal response, and I can I'm, I make the... Uh... I would make the assumption that this is a societal response that has happened in the past, but again, it just hasn't been, I don't know, uh, written down or reported on. The second is the people who are engaged in mutual aid, which sounds like something nobody had ever heard of before when you talk to people today. What do those who are engaging in mutual aid say about moral priorities in relationship toward each other? And am I right in assuming that mutual aid is nothing new? Um, could you uh, tell me a little bit what you mean exactly by mutual aid? These are the people who are working in parallel with the government. When the government is unable to uh, give whatever social services are necessary, provide whatever is needed to the public, the public does it for themselves. Absolutely. No, I do accept that that, uh, that NGOs and other associations have long been part of the way in which communities have dealt with uh, these emergencies. And if you look at, uh, we had, for example, uh, um, Doctors Without Borders was uh, intervening, and this is a, a shameful moment to have had this happen, actually was intervening, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not criticizing Doctors Without Borders, the opposite. Uh, the shameful part was that our own government wasn't doing it and depriving the rest of the world of the de badly needed services of Doctors Without Borders. But such was the situation in Detroit of neglect that Doctors Without Borders came in to provide uh, the mutual kind of aid that you're talking about. They also intervened um, in uh, the Navajo Nation uh, for the, exactly the same reason, uh, that there wasn't the infrastructure there of trained physicians and facilities and all the rest of it. So um, indeed, uh, that has a long history in time of cholera. There was uh, an international organization that sprang up uh, called the White Cross, which was an organization of volunteers who went uh, to some of the most uh, terribly uh, afflicted areas. And now we later on the Red Cross developed. And so these organizations have a tremendous uh, uh, part to play, and are, they're part of the story of the heroes of these pandemics, uh, putting their lives on the line uh, to provide mutual aid um, to communities and to help them deal with the crisis. Frank, this is a fascinating book, and one of the things I kept thinking about was the, the intense historic denialism we have of the impact that disease, that epidemics, that pandemics 
has had on our history. It's This is just a fascinating work because it seems like it's a whole part of our history that we've just ignored. I've got one last question for you, Frank, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, <laughs> or our audience might hate your response. We have been speaking with historian Frank M. Snowden, author of Epidemics and Society from the Black Death of the Present. Make sure you check out his earlier works, Naples in the Time of Cholera, 1884 to 1911, and the award-winning The Conquest of Malaria, Italy, 19. 19- to 1962. You write, as when you're writing about the bubonic plague, you write, the word plague is virtually synonymous with terror. It was an extraordinarily rapid and excruciating killer whose symptoms were dehumanizing. Furthermore, in the absence of an effective treatment, a substantial majority of its sufferers died, ensuring that contemporaries feared the destruction of entire populations of major cities, such as London and Paris. Here was the foundation for the horrifying cliche about the plague, that too few people survive to bury the dead. The clinical manifestations of each disease are essential to the task of decoding the social responses of populations and medical crises. In the case of plague, flight, witch hunts, the cult of saints, and violence. COVID-19 led to violence. Was that because it was not understood like the plague was not? Does a lack of understanding disease spark violence because I lived in San Francisco in 1989-1990 and during that time I heard of and met many people who were attacked by people because they were not only believed to be gay but also have HIV AIDS. Is that kind of violence and fear caused by not understanding disease and do you think any of the violence that we saw this summer may have been caused by not understanding the disease? I do believe that um, one of the causes of violence in time of disease uh, is a combination of fear and ignorance. It's not just the one, I think it's both, that people don't understand and so they find pseudo-solutions, for example, causing this uh, around, there's been a great deal of stigma. You mentioned uh, AIDS and the stigma against gay people. We see in the coronavirus enormous stigma against um, people of a- in our country of patient people of Asian origin who were attacked in subways and uh, Asian American kids being attacked on playgrounds. Uh, all of this sort of thing is um, that's. Uh, certainly ignorant because Asian Americans are not spreading this disease. Um, It's in no sense associated with them, but it's uh, so it's a uh, a ignorance and enormous fear. People are frightened of what is happening. And I think part of that is stoked by the dreadful uh, lack of um, leadership shown by um, government in this pandemic. People are, are not informed of what they really need to do to uh, protect themselves. And instead, the authorities are all contradicting each other. And the general public is dreadfully confused. And that creates a wonderful terrain for this combination of confusion, of, uh, uh, of ignorance, And also there are people who love to fish in troubled waters like this, uh, spreading sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, false uh, conspiracy theories about the disease that make people even more frightened and even more likely to behave in antisocial and aggressive manners. So what was the thing that your kids were disgusted by that you brought up at Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, um, oh, I for me, it seems normal to talk, for example, about cholera uh, and its <laughs> symptoms uh, and that sort of thing. I think this is just part of ordinary life and people need to know about it. And I feel sort of on a mission uh, uh, across the whole of my life to try to have people informed about it because I think it's so important. But not everybody welcomes that sort of uh, a conversation about what are rather ghastly events. I understand that, but I think we need to steel ourselves and think more carefully about it. So for this holiday season, would you suggest that people bring up uh, uh, coronavirus, the pandemic that is lurking all around us, 
during the appetizer dessert when's the best time to bring that topic up Frank? <laughs> oh I, in my point of view uh, all of those times are best and that they should be brought up at all times and in all places <laughs> all right frank thank you so much for being on our show thank you for having a good sense of humor about a horrible topic we have been speaking with historian frank m snowden author thank of epidemics so and society from the black death of the present thank you so much for being on our show my great pleasure all right take care Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to myself, chuck at thisishell.com, or producer Alex at alex at this is hell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each and every week. Just how are listeners answering this week's question from hell so far? This week's question from hell is What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Michael L says, I finally got a solo art show and was in two group shows in, all in April, and they were canceled and not set to a different date. I'm pretty lucky, really. Yeah, I've heard a ton of artists complain about how they had a huge show that was supposed to start in February or March, and all of a sudden they're screwed. You cannot do—the art gallery here is closed. I have no idea when this art gallery is ever going to open up again. Bradley R. says, honestly, I'm not sure I feel comfortable sharing my middle-class white guy problems. (laughs) Tom W., um, I was targeted for murder. (laughs) <laughs> well, Tom, all of a sudden, somebody's at the head of the list. Yeah, you might want <laughs> Unless somebody posthumously writes, I died, I don't think that you can beat that. Um, Fabio L. says, I got on Twitter. <laughs> uh, Ela C. says, 2020 happening to me. Okay. Laddie O. says, too many online funeral memorials to choose from. Wow. Yeah. Um, caveat says... I was created out of nothing into this painful and arbitrary existence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Again, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Um, Greg G says, uh, (laughs) he read all the replies to this question. Damn. (laughs) Um, Matt S says, 2020 ain't over yet. Is it possible to hold one's breath for 24 days? (laughs) uh, Well, let's find out. Martin F., uh, this year has been so bad that the only highlights were getting to visit my nieces in Springfield, Illinois twice and watching Alice in Chains tribute concert, and that's not a knock on Alice in Chains. <laughs> <laughs> I love them dearly, but when a tribute concert is one of your few highlights, you know it's been a, sh- uh, <laughs> a crappy 12 months. <laughs> Especially if you saw that Alice in Chains tribute concert in Springfield, Illinois. One of the worst <laughs> places in the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Victoria C., had an existential crisis and started believing in God again. <laughs> uh, Eric T. Um, I had to put my dog down due to cancer. Two weeks later, partner's dog was hit by a car and died. Two dogs in two weeks. Wow. Cody K. Um, totaled my car and having to replace a drain field in the same month. Then on top of that, having anxiety attacks every time I receive a judgy text or call from family members asking about plans for holidays, knowing full well that my household will be secluding ourselves to protect others. (laughs) Yikes. And lastly, um, Andrea J., extreme relationship stress. (laughs) Jeez. Jess, I'm going to be asking you, after I do this little read here, I'm going to be asking you what's the worst thing that happened to you in 2020. So I hate to throw this at you so quickly, but I'm going to do this read, and then you can tell me what's the worst (laughs) thing that happened to you in 2020. So the sixth book to make our list of 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in interviews with their authors is Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism by art curator, filmmaker, and theorist of photography and visual culture, Ariella Aisha Azale. Sure, we've we've told you here on This Is Hell what's wrong with the world, including racism, misogyny, patriarchy, neoliberalism, even capitalism, that all seem to be intertwined into one gigantic, horrible mess that's just awful. But what if I told you? 
there was something that combines all of those problems, that all of those horrors reside together under one big tent that encompasses every one of them, enabling each to be destructive in their own unique way, contributing to the overall destructiveness that we see happening to the planet and its people every freaking day. You'd freak out, right? It would change the way you view everything from the pandemic to the killing of George Floyd. And that real problem is imperialism. Aisha discusses imperialism in ways you have never considered it before, including the use of photography as a colonial weapon. That makes our sixth title on our favorite books to be featured in 2020 on This Is Hell, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism by Ariella Aisha Azale. So, Jess, what's the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Well, um, it really hasn't been all that bad, but <laughs> I guess having to move three times is the worst thing that happened to me in 2020. Did you have to move three times because of COVID? Um, no, kind of unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> so the worst thing you had to do was move three times. Moving three times, by the way, is a pain in the ass in one year. Yeah, it was awful. Did you have to rent a truck or did you do it on your own? Yeah, every, yeah all three times I rented a truck. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> just do not... Ugh. So... Jess, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Central Time, or Chicago Time, whatever you want to call it, right here at thisishell.com? Tomorrow, we have on journalist Federico Fuentes on his Green Left piece, Why Venezuela's National Assembly Elections Matter. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? The winner gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of that merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. Jess Lipka for producing. Frank Snowden for being our guest. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This is Hell. For more interview hell... And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.